0: Settle in, because in today's episode, we will be pulling from the archives a case from over 55 years ago and retelling the story of a 14-year-old girl who was brutally murdered in the streets of Mansfield, Ohio. It's a horrifying story filled with twists and turns and a devastating miscarriage of justice. How does a bright and beautiful young girl become the object of such a devious crime? How does law enforcement manage to catch her killer, imprison him, and subsequently help her killer escape? And most importantly, where is this outlaw now? I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. Let's examine the baffling case of Mary Ellen Diener. Mary Ellen Diener grew up in Mansfield, Ohio, a small town about 65 miles from the bustling city of Columbus. In the Unsolved Mysteries episode, Mary Ellen's sister Myrtle says she remembered Mansfield as a great place to live, a safe place to grow up where everyone knew each other. She grew up in a large family with seven siblings, and she was described as a fun girl who loved playing with dolls, had many friends, and loved to giggle. For a family that is practically the size of a football team, everyone had their own chores. The girls did the cleaning and the laundry while the boys took out the garbage and mowed the lawn. On the evening of November 14, 1965, Mary Ellen and her younger sister, Brenda, spent the evening doing laundry. According to their sister, Myrtle, their dryer was broken, so they had to take the wet clothes and catch a cab to the laundromat near their grandmother's house. This probably sounds strange, but Mary Ellen's grandmother also happened to live next door to the laundromat. So, if they needed help, they could just knock on Grandma's door. What happens next is just one link in the chain of events that leads to Mary Ellen's murder. It turns out that the two girls end up running out of change for the dryer, so Mary Ellen leaves Brenda in the laundromat to go get some change from another laundromat up the street. According to Myrtle, this walk only takes about five minutes to complete. With each passing minute, Brenda grows in worry as she waits for Mary Ellen to come back. When Mary Ellen hasn't shown up, Brenda decides to go over to her grandmother's house and tell her what happened. Upon hearing that Mary Ellen hasn't returned, her grandmother decides to set out on a search of her own, most likely expecting to bump into her granddaughter on her way back home, or at least waiting in the laundromat. However, what she discovers next is far from what she had hoped. On her way to the laundromat, Mary Ellen's grandmother sees bright lights and police officers in the distance. She walks up to a scene, a scene she could have never been prepared for. She finds her own granddaughter lying on the ground, dead from two gunshot wounds. Mary Ellen was shot with a 32 Ivor Johnson gun, which was purchased by a man named Lester Edward Eubanks. With this information, the police officers set out on a search for Lester Eubanks, and you'll never guess what they find. According to the intel from an informant for the police, Lester Eubanks was seen in the area earlier that night before Mary Ellen was killed. In the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, titled Death Row Fugitive, Mary Ellen's sister Myrtle remembers Lester Eubanks as someone who, quote, appeared to be a loner, end quote. He would walk around with nunchucks, swinging them up and down the street. Lester Eubanks, like Mary Ellen, grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. He was considered a likable guy who could fit in anywhere was charming and relatively unassuming. But that was all a facade, a cover story for who he really was. On the night Mary Ellen was killed, she saw the real Lester Edward Eubanks. You see, Lester Eubanks was what we would call a sexual predator today, but the creepy uncle back in the 60s. In 1959, he was charged with aggravated battery on a minor female, and in 1965, he was charged with attempted rape and then subsequently released on bond. The following Sunday morning, cops pick up Lester Eubanks for the murder of Mary Ellen Deener. They conduct an interview in which Lester admits to murdering Mary Ellen and provides a written confession. This is an excerpt from the statement. Quote, I walked past the laundromat. I saw a girl in there. She was a colored girl, but I didn't know her. I kept walking. I then heard someone running, then the running slowed down. I looked over my shoulder and and saw it was the girl that I had seen in the laundromat. I kept walking until I got up to the fence by this red house, which was empty. I stopped and turned kind of sideways. She was within arm's reach of me by then. She then said to me, What are you doing there? I told her that I was not doing anything, but letting her go by me, because I hated people to walk behind me. She was drinking a bottle of pop. She then raised the bottle about head level past her mouth, I blocked the lick with my left hand. She started to scream, and I got kind of scared. I put my hand over her mouth and drug her to the side yard of this empty red house. I put the gun against her. I pulled the trigger twice. After killing Mary Ellen Deener, Lester Eubanks flees the scene and walks home to his apartment. Upon arriving home, he gets ready to go out dancing at a nightclub. On his way downtown, Lester passes the scene of the crime, where Mary Ellen is still there, alive, bleeding out and writhing in pain. And if you thought this crime was already heartbreaking, it gets worse. Realizing that Mary Ellen is still breathing, Lester picks up a brick in the alley and goes back to kill her. That Sunday morning, after cops take Lester Eubanks into custody, they notify Mary Ellen's family. As you can imagine, the news was more than devastating for her family— However, while most victims' families don't see justice so soon, it appeared that the deaners were one of the families that did. At the Richland County Courthouse in May 1966, Mary Ellen's sister Myrtle is waiting for her sister's murder trial to begin. Upon the confession of Lester Eubanks, the jury convicted him of his crimes. He was sentenced to death. In the Unsolved Mysteries episode, Myrtle describes the trial as, quote, wrapped up in a bow for a while, end quote. And this is so aptly put, because what happens next will baffle you and infuriate you all at once. After his conviction, Lester was sent to death row at the Ohio State Penitentiary in Columbus, Ohio. A former inmate of Lester described him as very cocky, opinionated, and always had an attitude. He was described as a loner in prison. In the 70s, this particular prison allowed their death row inmates to consume their time with constructive hobbies like painting, During his time on death row, Lester's execution date was pushed back three times, and in 1972, the Supreme Court ruled that the death row penalty was abolished. This meant that Eubanks, along with other Ohio death row prisoners, had their sentences reverted to a life sentence. Understandably, this shocked and angered Mary Ellen's family. It seemed as if Eubanks was suddenly off the hook for Mary Ellen's murder. Nevertheless, the Deaner family tried their best to move on with their lives, to let go. And maybe this was a little easier to do, knowing that Lester Eubanks was at least serving a life sentence in prison. After the death penalty is abolished by the Supreme Court, Lester is placed back into general population. During this particular time, there was a lot of talk about reforming prisoners nationally. In the vein of reform, an honor program was developed to help prisoners prepare for life on the outside. And guess who was eligible for such a program? Lester Eubanks. This program allowed inmates, under certain circumstances, to leave the prison. According to the Unsolved Mysteries episode, inmates were allowed to drive trucks from prison to prison. They were also allowed, without the presence of a guard, to go run errands. Apparently, the rationale behind this was to reward prisoners, to incentivize good conduct. And although this makes sense in some aspects, it also seems absurd in others. How could the prisoner system allow Lester Eubanks, a sex offender and murderer, to participate in such a program that allowed this much freedom. December 7th, 1973, eight years after Mary Ellen's burner, Lester is allowed to leave the prison. You see, he, along with his fellow inmates, are going on a Christmas trip as part of a furlough program the prison has. Lester Eubanks is given the opportunity to do some Christmas shopping for his family before he must report back by 2 p.m., so he sets out in civilian attire. If you're like me and thinking this is the worst idea ever, you'd be right. For one, these inmates are permitted to break from the group. Not only that, but they don't even have to be chaperoned by the guards. I think you guys know where this is going. When it comes time for Lester Eubanks to report back to the agreed-upon meeting place, Lester is nowhere to be found. Guards began frantically searching for Lester Eubanks, but it was too late. The man, who somehow escaped the electric chair three times, was now escaping his life sentence. Again, the Diener family is met with more bad news, and just as before, they are rightfully shocked and angered at Lester's second escape from justice. No one knows how Lester Eubanks escaped from the shopping center that December day. It is doubtful that this escape was not planned. According to the Unsolved Mysteries episode, prior to his escape, Lester was visited many times in prison, and his visitation list was startling. Prior to his escape, his visits escalated from once a month to once a week. This casts some suspicion. Did these visitors help Eubanks escape prison? One theory is that a family member successfully helped Lester escape during the shopping trip. However, when his family was contacted, they refused to help police or offer any information that could help determine the whereabouts of Lester. After Lester escaped, a local warrant was issued against him. The federal government also took out a federal arrest warrant for Eubanks. This meant... That if he was found anywhere in the United States, he would be arrested and placed back in prison. However, despite a massive manhunt, there were no leads to Lester Eubank's whereabouts for 20 years after his escape. In December of 1993, 20 years after his escape, when a detective becomes curious about the progress of Lester's manhunt and checks up on the Wanted case, he discovers that there are no warrants to be found. This is baffling, not to mention a grave error by the justice system. If there aren't any warrants, this means if he was ever stopped during a traffic violation, or worse, there was no way for a police officer to know that he was a fugitive, and he would have been let go. Some write this monumental mistake off as a clerical error, but this is incredibly hard to believe. How do you let a sex offender and a murderer escape for the third time? On September 10, 1994, the TV show America's Most Wanted broadcasted an episode on Lester Eubanks and you'll never guess what comes of it. The night that this episode premieres, a woman claims that she knows Lester. You see, they were buddies from the 70s, and apparently Lester was once living with his cousin's widow, Kay Banks, back in Los Angeles. On October 28, 1994, Kay Banks heard a knock at the door. It was the Los Angeles Police Department. They were sent by Ohio detectives to question Kay Banks on her knowledge of the whereabouts of Lester. Kay told detectives that Lester lived with her in Los Angeles, but he no longer lived there. Kay Banks was originally from Ohio and was married to Daryl Banks, Lester's cousin. But it turns out that Kay and Lester's relationship truly began during Lester's prison sentence. Lester and Kay were pen pals. Kay tells police that Lester, after escaping from the shopping center, set out from Ohio to Michigan. He stayed in Michigan for a couple weeks making money from painting houses, and when he earned enough money, he paid for a trip all the way from Michigan to California. Lester tells Kay that in 1973, his bus from Michigan to California was pulled over. At that moment, Lester was sure that his time on the run was done. A police officer boards the bus, but what he's looking for isn't a man on the run. Actually, the police officer is looking for illegal fruit. The police officer and Lester make eye contact. Lester smiles, and the officer leaves the bus. Lester makes it to Los Angeles without being caught. There, he gets a hunting license and assumes a new name, Victor Young. Kay tells the police that she had no idea that Lester was planning to escape. She also tells police that while Lester lived with her, she was scared of him. One day, with growing fear, Kay tells Lester that she received a call from the FBI. This was all Lester needed to pack his bags and leave. According to Kay, this was the last time she saw Lester Eubanks. Kay provided information to the police that placed Lester Eubanks at a mattress manufacturing company in Gardena, California. When police go to check it out, the former owner places Victor Young, a.k.a. Lester Eubanks, at the facility up until 1986. LAPD worked with the case until 1996, but the case eventually met a dead end. In 2003, Michael Vinson, the lieutenant of Ohio State Highway Patrol, heard about this death row fugitive case and he began his search for Lester Eubanks. In his search, he found files that revealed Eubanks' communication with family members, particularly his father. It turns out his father was the only living relative in Mansfield, Ohio. So, in the summer of 2003, Michael Vinson visited Eubanks' father to try to uncover the whereabouts of his son. However, Eubanks' father refuses to talk about his son, so Michael Vinson and his partner leave Eubanks' father's home sure that Lester's father knows where he's hiding. And that same summer, an informant comes forward claiming that she was actually at Eubanks' father's home when his phone rang, and she believes it was Lester on the other end. You see, Eubanks' father claimed that he was speaking to his son who lived in Alabama, painting houses for a living. According to Lieutenant Michael Vinson, this seems like a credible lead. After checking for the locations of all of Eubanks' siblings, none of them were living in Alabama at the time and after getting a subpoena for Mose Eubanks' phone records, the records revealed that several calls were coming and going to a center for troubled youth. Apparently, there was a blackmail that fit the description of Lester Eubanks, who was working at this youth center. Not only that, but this man had no driver's license, and his social security number kept coming back as a false social security number. Could this man be Lester Eubanks? This man in question is long gone before Lt. Michael Minson, can pursue this possible lead. This is disheartening. Michael Vincent has seemed to come incredibly close to finding Lester Eubanks, but somehow he is still shy of being caught by the authorities. Mary Ellen Deener's sister Myrtle still visits the gravesite of her sister, mourning two losses, the loss of her sister and the massive miscarriage of justice that allowed Lester Eubanks, a child killer, to escape. Myrtle says, quote, he never asked for forgiveness. He could have asked in court. Nobody has even said anything to my family from that family. The murder of Mary Ellen Deener and the baffling events that followed is more than tragic. This man needs to be captured. Mary Ellen Deener cannot catch her own killer and bring him back to prison where he belongs. And it is clear that those who were initially charged with this responsibility can no longer be the only ones fighting for the justice of Mary Ellen Deener. This means that everyday people, people like you and me, will be the ones who are integral to helping authorities capture Eubanks. In July of 2018, 45 years after Eubanks' escape, Eubanks was added to the 15 Most Wanted list. In addition, age progression composite photos were added. Lester Eubanks' family and friends are located in Texas, Ohio, Michigan, Alabama, Florida, California, and Washington State. So if he's still out there, he will most likely be in these states staying with friends or family members the U.S. Marshals Service is offering up a $50,000 reward for any information that leads to his arrest. Myrtle says, quote, It is important that Lester is caught because he was given a life sentence. He took my sister's life. She didn't get an extension. Her life is over. And the law says that is what should happen to him. I want him caught, end quote. Lester Eubanks has been wanted since 1973. He is a black male with brown eyes and black hair, around 175 pounds, and around 5'11". Today, he would be 77 years old. Lester Eubanks has a large scar that is about an inch thick and wraps around his upper arm. Lester is an extremely skilled painter, and detectives believe this may be a key factor in identifying who he is. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of Lester Eubanks, contact the U.S. Marshals at 866-4-WANTED. If you'd like to listen to more episodes of the Lost Crimes Library, you can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Remember, sharing is caring, so make sure to share this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any new episodes. This episode was written and hosted by Nisa Henderson, and it was produced by Channing Tab and Nisa Henderson.